Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. A lot of people call our healthcare system broken. The problem is it wasn't designed by employers who foot the bill, doctors who provide the care, or patients who receive the care. It's not working well for those three entities. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today's show takes us in a different but related direction into the dumpster fire of health insurance pertaining to employer-based care. Joining me is David Contorno, founder of ePowered Benefits, You know, which sounds jargony, but I assure you, he's one of the more controversial and outspoken whistleblowers advocating in the space. And you may be surprised at all of the aha and gestalt moments revealed on today's show. Everyone knows that there are benefits when we take a job, but what exactly are those benefits? Do we really read all the fine print? Does the employer genuinely have our interests in mind versus the overly enticing cost-saving measures that limit your choices? Are we blindly accepting the iTunes terms of service when we hit the OK button? It's easy to confuse, comport, and conflate healthcare with health insurance. And in the end, it all comes down to who writes the check on your behalf. Unfortunately, the perversion of incentive-based care too often skews the medical establishment toward making recommendations and decisions on our behalf that are better for them than for us. You know, it's nice to say that the healthcare system is broken, but the real conspiracy is that there isn't one because this broken system is actually working by design and exactly as it was planned. Buckle up and enjoy the show. David, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. I am clearly out of patience as we speak during COVID time as this show is recorded, but I was really thrilled to be introduced to you because you work in the space that has confounded me for years, having worked in adolescent and young adult cancer, people who are largely employed, and the entirety of what are my benefits? Are they perks? What do I do? How do I navigate? When bad things happen to good people and you're employed, who gets you through that? And that's your space. Tell us more. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I, um, I have been what you would call a health insurance broker um, since I was 17. I'm 43 now, so I'll let you do the math. For the majority of that career, and, and for anyone who's an employer or an HR uh, leader within their organization, um, some of this might sound familiar, but for the first 16 or 17 years of my career, I would go to the traditional insurance carriers, the Blue Crosses, the United, the Cygnus, the Aetnas, what have you, and I would ask for quotes, for proposals for my client. And then I would put what I thought was the best proposal together, I would present it to you, and if you felt that I offered you the best option from those carriers, then I would win the business. And winning the business meant I would get paid a commission from the insurance carriers. And that's a really important 
issue because one of the premises that I, I sort of live by is a lot of people call our healthcare system broken. It's not broken. It's actually working exactly as it was designed to work. The problem is it wasn't designed by employers who foot the bill, doctors who provide the care, or patients who receive the care. It's not working well for those three entities. But when you look at every entity that we entrust, it is working really well for them. So start with that broker, what I used to be. Every time you got a rate increase, how much money I made went up. Why? Because I was paid a commission. And if I could get you to switch to the carrier of the day, the flavor of the month or the year, and keep you there, I got bonuses up the wazoo. I mean, it was private cruises, trips to Ireland for golf for a day or two, uh, dinners and drinks, uh, the likes of which was just ridiculous. And what I came to realize was that th this was a perverse incentive. This I am purporting to represent my client, but I'm being paid by the insurance company. And the worst job I do at what my client wants me to do, which is controlling costs, the more money I make. But the real shift for me occurred about six or seven years ago. And, and as that broker, I would go to that employer and I'd sit around a conference room table with a bunch of people making six figures. And we all came in in nice new cars and we're making decisions for people that make 30 or 40 or 50,000 a year. And what became really hard for me, Matt, was not the conversation with those executives, the real decision makers. But a couple of weeks later, I was then charged with educating their employees on what was going on with their plan for the next year. And at least nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, I was coming in with the same message. Rates are going up, benefits are going down. That's the best we can do, deal with it. The more your rates went up and the more your benefits went down, the more money I made. And that just didn't feel right. And so the first thing I changed in this journey was how I get paid. And the way that we get paid now exclusively is we are paid a direct fee from our clients. We are forbidden from taking money from anyone else. We have no special interests. We have no perverse incentives. And with many of our clients, we have a bonus structure where when we achieve the goals the client wants us to achieve, we get a bonus from the client. And most of the time, although not all the time, that is tied to lowering costs. So now we're fully aligned and now we can start to roll out solutions that truly work. Sounds to me akin to the fiduciary role of finance people that manage your wealth, right? You know, what's interesting um, analogy, Matt, that you bring that up is there's a law that most employers are familiar with as it relates to their 401k, and it's called ERISA, which stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And that came about um, because of a uh, car manufacturer, and I don't know why I'm blanking on it right now. It wasn't Studebaker, or maybe it was, but it was a car manufacturer that's no longer around. And as that car manufacturer was struggling financially, it used their employees' pension money to help keep the business going. And maybe they did it altruistically saying, well, if these people don't have jobs, what good is retirement? I don't know. But out of that came ERISA, which said that retirement money is participant money. And you as the employer, as the fiduciary, must do everything in your power to ensure that that is operating in the interests of the plan participants. You can't put in a known bad investment option as an example. However, not long after that law was passed, it was expanded to include health plans. So not a similar law, not a, a, a law that was written parallel, but the exact same law that says you can't put in this bad investment option for one participant because it could harm others. Let me ask you this. If you have a network like a Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna network, 
which are really broad, and you have zero access to cost and quality, if you as the fiduciary allow one of your employees to get a really high cost knee replacement at a really low quality facility that results in not only higher costs, but maybe complications, aren't you harming every single other participant under the plan by increasing the cost for them, even though they weren't impacted by it directly? The answer is yes. The problem is the Department of Labor, which is largely tasked with enforcing ERISA, doesn't enforce it on the health plan side to the same way they do on the 401k side, which to me is crazy because the 401k is far smaller dollars and no 401k is going to impact your immediate health as a access to care can. You keep coming back to what you said before, and I think you broke my brain by telling the truth that just, it, you know, it's staring you in the face that the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way they planned it to. And it wasn't meant for people to get anything done and feel good. I have two points to bring up. We alluded to this uh, before the show, our listeners, we were chatting about our, our common angst, so to speak. And the first one is, all right, let's take the small businesses, right? Under whatever that number is, like 5,000 employees, whatever it is. And the balance between retention and loyalty and what's best for your employees as a metric of health for the business versus what's best for the business as metric for shareholders and growth. How mm -hmm. does that philosophy net out in the sense of benefits versus cost savings? Well, luckily, they go totally and completely hand in hand. And let me explain what I mean. There are a lot of economic principles that we hold dear and true to us as Americans and capitalists that are completely backwards in the healthcare system. And before I address the one specific to this, I want to tell you about another one. And it's something as simple as supply and demand. In health, you were used to supply and demand being inversely related, right? As supply goes up, demand goes down. As demand goes up, supply goes down. In healthcare, it's not that way. See, what our healthcare systems do, the hospitals themselves, especially because many of them are quote unquote nonprofit. And I say nonprofit. These, are, these health systems are making oodles and oodles of profit. Nonprofit means two things. They don't pay taxes and they don't have shareholders to turn that profit over to. So when they make that profit, they do two things. They increase the salaries to their administrators and they build more capacity for providing care. So they might build a new wing onto their hospital, uh, their actual hospital where they add 100 new beds. They might put in a new MRI machine, but here's the thing. One thing we have in this country a lot of is access to care. We have tremendous amounts of the, the, the per capita MRIs is the highest in the world. The per capita hospital beds is highest in the world. So there's no shortage of supply for healthcare, but they keep building out more and more supply. The problem is the demand isn't there. So what do they do? They artificially inflate the demand. And how do they do that? It's a little dirty secret, and it has to do with how hospital systems pay doctors and they pay doctors on two metrics predominantly. One is how many patients they see in a day. The more patients they see, the more money they make. Of course, the more patients they see, the less time they spend per patient. But the other one, and this is the really dirty secret, is something called an RVU and it stands for relative value unit. And it's a measurement of how much revenue that doctor generates, not in their own office, but in other parts of the health system that employs them. So when they send you for an MRI at the hospital, which is the most expensive place to get an MRI, they maximize their revenue. If they send you to a spine surgeon for spine surgery, they maximize their revenue. So they financially incentivize the doctors to build up that demand after they've increased the supply. And I promise you it works just like when drug manufacturers 
lavish on doctors, their prescribing habits clearly are altered. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. So what's the other uh, one? And this is a positive one that speaks directly to your question. And that is that cost and quality in healthcare are also inversely related. If you have access, and it's not easy to get cost or quality data in healthcare, but we, we pay tens of thousands of dollars for licenses to databases that give us that information. And if you look at facilities and doctors that are among the highest quality for a particular procedure in any given market, you will generally find them to be on the lower side of the price spectrum. The reason for that, the one metric that sits between cost and quality is frequency. The more frequently they do it, the better they tend to do it and more efficiently, therefore, the lower the price. So the win-win situation that occurs, Matt, is when we build a health plan. Now, we have to build health plans outside of the carrier space because the carriers won't let us do this. They Not only is it against their financial interest to do this, but their contracts with those large health systems prohibit them from doing this. But imagine for a minute, Matt, if you were on one of our style plans, you worked at an employer that used our plan, and your doctor wants to do an MRI. And so the doctor has to call in and pre-certify that MRI. It's standard to most plans. When you call in to pre-certify that MRI, the doctor says, we want to do it at the hospital that employs him. Of course, that's the most expensive place to do it. But we know that that MRI is going to cost $4,000, but there's an independent radiology center down the street, and we have a cash price of $300. Same MRI machine. So when that doctor calls to pre-certify, our team is going to reach out to you, Matt. Remember, we're incentivized to do this because the more we bring costs down, the more money we make. And we set up the plan to be like this. Matt, your doctor wants an MRI. We agree an MRI is appropriate. However, he wants to do it at the hospital where it's going to cost $4,000, and you're going to pay $2,000 of that because of your deductible, and your employer is going to pay the other $2,000. But we found a place three miles away, and we've negotiated a price on the same MRI machine, and if you go there you're not gonna pay anything. Your health plan is gonna pay the full amount because if I'm the employer and my health plan is paying out, would I rather pay 50% of 4,000 or 100% of 300? Answer's easy, right? So, okay, let's say you say, you know what? I want that no cost MRI. So you go to the MRI, now you need surgery. Well, again, we do the same thing in surgery and we look at the quality of the provider, we look at the quality of the facility, we look at the one you want to go to, and who's the best for your situation in the market, what's the price difference? And again, in almost every case, we find the price is lower, the outcomes are better. So we would, again, when your doctor calls to pre-certify that surgery, we'd say, hey, Matt, where you're going, your doctor is a 60 out of 100. Here's why. It's based on his infection rate, his mortality rate, his morbidity rate. And we want to send you to a place that's a 98 out of 100. And if you go there, and we don't say this to the patient, but maybe we have a pre-negotiated price of 15,000 for that knee replacement at the higher quality place, whereas the lower quality place is going to charge 50,000. We say to that member, if you go to that higher quality place, your employer wants you to get the best care possible, they'll pay 100% of it. Otherwise, your standard out-of-pocket supply, where do you want to go? And we wind up steering people to places where we know the quality is higher. And at the same time, talk about retention and recruiting. You as the employer get to give this message to your employees. When you access high quality care, we cover 100% of the cost. And it substantially lowers costs, dramatically improves outcomes. And at the same time, everybody wins. So I have 30,000 questions to ask you now. <laughs> and I'm trying to think about the top. So what's going through my head is that, you know, I know a lot of 
physicians, practicing physicians and specialists, and they're in the mire of I have to see all of these patients to save money and I'm bound by a hospital system and and I hate it and I'm burning out and I'm going private practice and screw the system. And the mm-hmm. turnover into private practice and cash only and concierge, that's a whole other show we can do. But I like the fact that you're practicing something that there are words that aren't really used much anymore. A channel like Ralph Nader in the 60s was a, a consumer protection advocate. You know, the seatbelt stuff. He looked out for all mm-hmm. of us. It's rare to even hear that the private sector healthcare industry or benefits or whatever, they make money by actually being a consumer protection mechanism. And you're like, I, I make analogies really well. Like I look at like GoodRx. You know, people didn't mm-hmm. know that the pill was cheaper across the street till they pioneered their platform. So you're helping people realize that the same damn thing is cheaper over here for equal quality. Where do you get them to trust you on that? <laughs> you know, that is a really good question. Um, it's not easy. Um, for some reason, in the United States, I don't know if this is true of other countries, but I can tell you it's very true here. We put doctors up on a pedestal as though somehow they're more extraordinary human beings than the rest of us. But the reality is, is they still put their pants on one leg at a time. They still have divorces, children in college, sicknesses in their family, right? They still have all the same issues. And when you look at, again, how they're paid, I believe very wholeheartedly that the in aggregate, the financial incentives of any economic system are going to win the day, even if there are some people pushing back against them. Because again, as a broker, the more your rates went up, the more money I made. So a doctor, the more they treat, the more they refer you to high cost care, the more money they make. Here's a little known secret. And this is the result of federal law. So anyone who doesn't understand this or believes it, I encourage you to find a provision of the Affordable Care Act called medical loss ratios. And the medical loss ratio provision, a lot of people think that if an insurance company collects, let's say, a billion dollars in premium in the course of a year from everyone, every employer in that state, the less money they spend in claims, the more money they make. And so erroneously, employers think that insurance companies have incentives to keep claims costs down. That is absolutely not true. The medical loss ratio provision says that every insurance company must spend 85 cents of every dollar they collect in premium on healthcare costs. And the other 15 cents is for them to keep for their overhead and their profit. That means that their profit on average, depends on the carrier, is around 4% of premium. And premium has to be 85% claims. So the only way to increase profit is to increase premium. And the only way to increase premium is for claims to go up. Now, you mentioned a a strong word a little while ago, fiduciary responsibility. Who does the insurance company have a fiduciary responsibility to? Well, most of them are publicly traded. That means their sole fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders to drive as much shareholder value as possible, which means as much profit as possible. And if you look at the performance of the publicly traded insurance companies since Obamacare passed, it is wildly above the market as a whole. Now, I'm not sitting here bashing Obamacare. I often say, if you think Obamacare caused or fixed the problem, you don't understand the problem. So I'm not here saying it was good or bad. It had mixed reviews. It did some good for some, some bad for others. But again, insurance company, brokers have incentives for costs to go up. Insurance companies have incentives for costs to go up. Health systems have incentives for costs to go up. Pharmacy benefit managers and drug manufacturers have incentives for costs to go up. So we wind up in a system in which costs keep going up. But I do think that doctors deserve 
a little more credit than they've likely gotten. I mean, uh, many people may not know this, but doctors are now the number one suicide and drug abuse rate of any profession in the United States. They overtook dentists a few years ago. And the main reason is that they are being told how to treat by hospital administrators and insurance companies. They're spending 40% of their time filling out paperwork. That's not what they envisioned when they went to medical school. Doctors, employers, and patients are the ones suffering the most in our current system. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, picking up on everything you said, I still have maybe 29,997 questions now. But I do want to tie into, you mentioned laws. And I'm a big believer that policy is kind of the only thing that makes anything matter in the interest of the American citizen. Can you talk to us about what laws, what policies, what advocates, what influencers made things better for employees that you're leaning into with your business model? You know, there's not a lot out there because the lobbyists and the special interests are so powerful. Both current candidates are talking some of these things. But of course, we have a president right now who's, you know, well over three and a half years into a four year term and hasn't effectively been able to enact any of them. What I think needs to occur is something really simple transparency. You know, (laughs) there's been a lot of legislation recently around something called surprise bills. And what surprise bills are in that vernacular is you have a plan with a network, you do everything you can to make sure your surgeons in the network and your hospitals in the network, but oops, your anesthesiologist, who you didn't even know or meet until five minutes before you were knocked out, was out of network, and therefore you wind up with a higher out-of-pocket than you would otherwise have if you stayed all in network. Now, let me give you a little tip, people. Anesthesiologists, radiologists, and emergency rooms in particular, they don't contract with networks intentionally. Why should they agree to a discount when you don't get to choose them and they can take advantage of you and your health plan to the maximum extent possible? The reason that doctors agree to be part of a network is because patients get funneled to them. If you need a new primary care doctor, you're going to look in your directory, and if they're not in there, you're not going to go. So we have this 
confounding of the issue where this surprise billing vernacular is, oh my gosh, I actually went out of network, but I have a question. Isn't every bill in healthcare a surprise since nobody knows what the price is going to be, even the actual provider of care until after services are rendered? It is the most insane model of buying anything where you have zero visibility into price and zero visibility into quality until after you've already been provided the services and the quality is known based on your outcome and the cost is known when you get your bill or your EOB, that is just ripe with potential for abuse. And that is why we are so abused by health insurance and healthcare systems. Your metaphor about how healthcare is a supply-only economy and no one demands to be part of a, no one asks to be on Keytruda one day. Like you're not waiting one day to have your leg broken to be given a random bill. You're right. The system Mm -hmm. is built for itself and not for people. I I think it's important for me to talk, you know, my my listeners historically have been employed, younger Gen X millennials, and we're bound by the iTunes, you know, uh, agreement metaphorically when we take our jobs. Help me unpack this could be a very long answer, but and there's no simple answer. When you get a job, people always ask about the benefits. What are the benefits? Paid sick leave, you know, uh, dental, whatever that is. Does, does anyone think to ask or do HR benefit managers think to tell any of this to prospective employees for fear that they won't take the job? Or, wow, I really want to work here because this was actually explained to me and I understand it. There's a real problem with how we educate employees on their healthcare, whether it's new hires or think of during that open enrollment period, right, where you, you're being educated on what changes are occurring. So I'm, I like a lot of analogies too, Matt, and I have a lot of car analogies. So imagine you were teaching your teenage child how to drive a car. Do you think an intelligent approach to that would be to sit them down at the kitchen table one day, open up your booklet from Geico? go through all the provisions of the GEICO policy, and then hand them the keys and say, go? That would be pretty derelict, right? But isn't that what we do with healthcare every year? Don't we have an open enrollment meeting where we open up our Blue Cross and Blue Shield book, and we go over all the provisions of your insurance policy? Here's your copay. Here's the network of doctors you can go to. Here's what you're going to pay for a drug. Here's when your deductible applies. But you know what we never do? We never teach them how to actually be a good patient. How do you navigate the healthcare system? How do you figure out quality of a provider? Forget cost for a minute. When I ask people, how do you know that your doctor is good? The number one answer I get, I've been going to him for years. Well, if you have a chronic disease, if you have a car that's the air conditioning is breaking and you bring it to the same mechanic over and over and over and over again, at some point, aren't you going to flip mechanics? But I know people that have gone back for three and four back surgeries with the same spine surgeon or people whose cancer doesn't improve and they stay with the same oncologist getting the same treatment. And I know obviously cancer, Matt, is probably a passionate topic for you for obvious reasons, but in orthopedics, 60% of care either doesn't make the patient better or makes them worse. Do you know what that percentage is in cancer treatment? Almost 90% of cancer patients are either being mistreated or misdiagnosed currently. And it's all in how cancer care is paid for. It is highly profitable. And most oncologists, when they're infusing chemo or other medications, they are paid as a markup of the price of the drug, usually 6 to 12%. 
So if I have a choice as your oncologist between a $10,000 a month drug and a $100,000 a month drug, and let's assume they're both equally as effective for a moment, I'm going to gravitate towards the $100,000 a month drug because I'm going to make more money on the markup. But unfortunately, and I'm not saying every doctor is like this, we know that those financial incentives often lead them to not give the best advice in the, in the interest of the patient. Yeah. So where is the moral compass on Hippocrates versus financial incentive? I guess that's the $20,000 question right now, and it's probably not so easily answerable. But does that explain in any way why there's this massive exodus into private practice? Yeah. So a lot of reasons why providers are doing that. And one movement that I am particularly proud to support and be a part of is a movement called direct primary care. And let me tell you kind of what's happened with primary care over the last 20 years. And I'm sure many of you on the, listening to this have heard this before or seen this, but I know that I used to go to my doctor, my primary care doctor. And when I was meeting with him, I was meeting with one of the owners of the practice or the owner of the practice. And one day I went in for my annual physical and all of a sudden the logo of the local health system was on the front door. Now, Primary care practices typically lose money. So why would hospital systems buy up primary care practices that are losing money? Well, the answer is that's the entryway into the system, and they can use the incentives they place on that primary care doctor to steer patients within their own healthcare system instead of that doctor being independent and steering you wherever is in your best interests. And what happened is as they bought up these primary care practices, they kept lowering the reimbursements to primary care because they literally wanted to devalue primary care to the point where when your back hurt, you went right to the spine surgeon. Because the second you go to a spine surgeon, what's the most likely outcome? Spine surgery. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To a surgeon, everything looks like surgery. That's what they do. They're comfortable with it. That's how they get paid. And so insurance companies want you skipping over that low-cost, high-value care and going to the low-value, high-cost care because that's what maximizes them. So we have this degradation of primary care. And so the movement that's sort of pushing against that is direct primary care. And those are doctors that typically left that fee-for-service, high-volume, low-value environment. And they move to a completely different payment model. I'm with a direct primary care doctor. Um, his name is Dr. Alex Lickerman, and he's in Chicago. And I pay Alex a flat monthly fee for myself and my family, and that covers all of our primary care. I don't pay a copay. I don't even need to see him. Heck, he's 1,500 miles away because he gets paid that monthly fee whether I see him 100 times, zero, in person, telephonically, video chat, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, the incentives to do as many services as you can is actually turned on its head. Now, because I pay him this fixed monthly fee, the more care he provides, the less money he makes instead of the other way around. His goal and his financial incentives are to get me as healthy as possible as quickly as possible and everything aligns with that. So that direct primary care movement is picking up a lot of steam and you can Google it. It is not a concierge doctor. The difference between direct primary care and concierge medicine is that concierge doctors have a very, charge a very high fee and still bill insurance. Direct primary care doctors charge a very reasonable fee and don't bill any insurance at all, ever. I think you and I could have an entire podcast series for the next 20 years unpacking all of this insanity. But I do want to thank you for coming on the show. For any of my listeners who work in HR, our employees have access to all the systems in the employer-based universe. What's your message to them, David, real quick? How can they find out about you and what do you offer them and what do they do? We work with employers in two ways. One is we work directly with employers. We manage and build a customized, high-value 
health plan. And our results are such that typically at the end of the first year, we lower employer costs. And let me clarify, um, I'm not saying we come in with less of an increase. That's not lowering costs. We actually lower costs at the end of the first year by somewhere between 20 and 30%. And typically by the end of the second to third year, we're somewhere between 40 and 60% below where they were two years, three years ago. And at the same time, we've lowered employees out of pockets often to zero. Those are the kind of results that we bring. And so we work with employers directly, but I've been doing this a long time, as I mentioned in the opening. And at this point, I want as many brokers and consultants to have this in their hands as possible. I mean, I love getting bonuses now because it means I achieved the goals the client wanted me to achieve. And I want to show other brokers and consultants how to do that. So we mentor brokers and consultants around the country on how to do this. So if you have a good relationship with your broker and consultant and think they're willing to do this, we'll partner with them. If you don't think they're willing to do this, then we can do it despite them. Um, but a great way to see what we do and how we do it and put up our successes and our failures is on LinkedIn. I put a lot of content out there. So if you type my name into LinkedIn and we'll put a link in there, I imagine um, you'll be able to find me. And you can also connect with me through LinkedIn if you're at all interested in getting a health plan that goes uh, down in cost and up in benefits, um, we can help you achieve that. David Contorno is the founder at ePowered Benefits, and I am joining you on this hill to die on. Thank you for coming on Out of Patience. Thanks for having me, Matt. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>